could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are sitting one day out from the NBA Finals. So obviously today we're going to dedicate the majority of our time to previewing what should be a very interesting series. Two franchises that have not been here in a long time. The Bucks haven't won since the early 70s. The Suns have never won the entire thing. So again, a lot on the line for these franchises that are really sitting in about as good of a position as they have in a very, very long time. But before we get into that, and before we start giving all of our keys and interesting storylines from that series, it seems like we should take some time to reflect on the team that also had not been to this stage in a while or had not posed this level of a threat to actually make the finals in a very, very long time, probably since they moved to their current city, and that is the Atlanta Hawks, a team that obviously showed a ton of fight, ended up falling in six to the Bucks. We saw Trey come back off of his uh, uh, bone bruise, and he clearly did not play one of his best games, but as we look back on this Hawks season, Logan, what are some of your key takeaways from that? I mean, they should be ecstatic with where they ended up uh, this season, and they are going to be good for a uh, long time. Like, uh, this next season, Bogey's coming back, Capella's coming back, Trey is coming back, he's going to get a monster extension, DeAndre Hunter comes back, and he's healthy. Like, And that's another big thing, is just he wasn't even here for these playoffs. I don't know if he makes a dramatic change, but he's a 17-point-per-game scorer, gets you six boards a night, defends mm-hmm. hard. Like, he can... He could have swung this series potentially if he was healthy. I mean, uh, Onyeko Okongwu is steadily getting better. Now, uh, the interesting thing for the Hawks this offseason, they may lose John Collins, um, but, like, outside of Kevin Herter and Collins, like, they've got a genuine championship window between 2023 to 2024, and they've got all of those pieces uh, that I named locked up. They're young, they're under contract, they're going to be back. And honestly, Carson, I think the only thing this team needs to do, you move off Gallo's contract, you build out a slightly better, more reliable bench, you get some more difficult shot makers that fit in this system, and you let mm-hmm. it ride. Um, it's going to be tough. There's a lot of good teams out east, but uh, with what Trey has proven this offseason, uh, I don't think there's any reason to expect anything less moving forward from the Hawks. Interesting. So is your expectation then that we will see back-to-back conference finals out of them, that they might be even better next year overall? I think it's going to be close. I think they definitely get to the semis. I think they're one of the final uh, four teams out east. I can't say that now. I think the Nets are a lock for the ECF next year. The Hawks, I'll have to wait and see with what they do in the offseason. But I think they're definitely going to be competing for it. Yeah, I think that it's going to be a tougher path to get there next year because I think that obviously they were able to take out a Sixers team that as far as offensive dynamism wasn't really able to match up to some of the other legit contenders. And then they had an opportunity sort of slip through the cracks there with Giannis out, and you still can't close the deal in that game six. Obviously, Trey, again, not himself. But one of the most remarkable single-season turnarounds I can think of, even midseason. I mean, starting 14-20 and 20 with Lloyd Pierce at the helm, then what they were able to do with Nate McMillan. I think the answers that we got about so many key players on this team All the way up to Trey, who, again, we hadn't seen him obviously lead a team to this caliber of winning. They were in the cellar of the NBA last year, and now here they are, or here they were, sitting in the Final Four. And I think that, in a weird way, it's encouraging that you saw all the supporting guys step up in that Game 6, even in defeat. And, yeah, Trey wasn't there. He was 4 of 17. But long-term, you're not worried about Trey Young. But you saw John Collins continue to produce go to a couple of those lethal face-up jumpers that just will not miss for him, it seems. Bogey was back on the horse, playing really great basketball with that 20-piece. Gallo was fine, and I think that the most exciting thing for for them going forward is what you saw from Cam Reddish, putting up 21, 6-7 from deep, legitimate creation off the dribble, fearlessness, like he's obviously been hot and cold throughout his career up to this point. There were encouraging signs early in this year, and then things kind of went off the rails, and it's just about if he can consistently hit that shot. But clearly, he's unafraid of the moment, and clearly, as we already knew, a very skilled, fluid, natural basketball player, and just another guy who, if they have at full strength next season, as you mentioned, along with DeAndre Hunter and retaining so many of these pieces, they will have perhaps even greater potential than we saw this year. It's just the teams around them are going to be likely stronger as well as they all get back to full strength. 
Yeah, and, and Reddish is another guy who's under contract for a little bit through 2023, I believe, on a uh, team deal. Like, if he takes a step up, it gives him another guy to take the ball out of Trey's hands to another confident shot maker. I mean, I think, really, I think you're right. I think they missed a genuine opportunity to get to the finals, clearly, when Giannis is out, when Embiid gets hurt as well. Like, this was a this was a year to do it, if you were going mm-hmm. to. Um I just think it came down to they just relied a little bit too much on uh, those tough shots, and they just weren't falling. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, it sucks for the Hawks. Um, do you? I want to ask you then, Carson. Like, what are your expectations? Do you think this team makes an ECF run? Do they have another Finals run uh, potentially in them in these next few years? Well, the healthy Nets are going to eviscerate everybody in the Eastern Conference next year, presuming that they can be healthy, and. I don't think that the Hawks are as complete of a team with as high of a ceiling as maybe even a team like Milwaukee. I picked them to win this series, and I think that they were obviously competitive throughout. And even in that game six, kept fighting, stayed in that game. They had the offensive punch. They just could not get enough stops, couldn't secure enough rebounds. But they clearly have the structure of a really, really good basketball team. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Capella. Obviously, he did not play every key minute down the stretch here as they were looking for a little bit more of that offensive creation, offensive punch. But I also don't think we ever saw him get exposed defensively as we did in some of those Rockets-Warriors matchups where teams go small and they play him off the court. That was never the issue. It was just he's so limited offensively, but he still excels in that lob-catching role-man job. And as they continue to see Onyeka develop, and I think these playoffs were very encouraging in that respect, Maybe they find a cheaper alternative there for a couple years until his rookie deal expires. I just think there's a lot to like here. There's a lot of quality guys who are still young, still developing. You have your culture in place with your great coach. You have your franchise player. And this is a place we did not expect them to be in. So yeah, it stings that they weren't able to finish the job. But nobody would have thought at the beginning of this season, midway through this season, that we were going to be like, oh man, the Hawks couldn't get it done and go all the way to the finals. Like this is an incredible accomplishment. And I don't know if next year is going to be better because it's going to depend on the individual development of a lot of these young guys and maybe some of the stuff that they do filling out this roster, like the Collins decision and all that, if they can move off the Gallo contract. But clearly the pieces are there. There's a very sound franchise that is trending and has already trended aggressively in the right direction. And you've been a guy who's been really critical of John Collins in the past. Do you think they should bring him back? Like if he's asking... If you have to pay him Gallo money, should you pay John Collins? Yeah, I mean, I think that generally my line for him has been around $20 million. If you're going above that, if you're paying him close to max money, not worth it. But I think he is clearly a perfect complement for Trey as a dynamic floor spacer, as a big-time lob threat, as a skilled scorer out of the post, and was, for the most part, their second-best offensive player in a run to the Eastern Conference Finals. So I don't think you can just neglect that and say, Yeah, I think he's a guy we can let walk. I don't think he's essential, as I've said before, but I think it would definitely be nice to have him back. So props to the Hawks, man. Fantastic run and proved a lot, a lot of individual players and obviously collectively as a group to a lot of people out there. But at the end of the day, they are not among the last two teams standing and those two teams are who we will dedicate the rest of our time to today. So Let's start by just looking at some keys to this series. Couldn't be from either perspective, Phoenix, Milwaukee, maybe something that both teams have to focus in on, but what's the first thing that stands out to you in that respect? Uh, the first key, and I've brought this up in nearly every Sun series so far, and that's DeAndre Ayton's ability to, this time, limit Giannis. Uh, he's been constantly tasked with uh, you know, some of the most difficult defensive assignments in every series thus far, obviously against the Lakers, AD and Braun, against the Nuggets with Jokic. Um, against Eclipse, not so much. He had Zubac as his uh, you know, drawn partner, but he dominated on the glass. He played extremely well offensively and efficiently. And yeah, in this offseason, or in this postseason, excuse me, he's ascended uh, to otherworldly efficiency. Uh, 70.6, but it's going to be really hard to hold Giannis in check unless the injury is worse than we thought. Um, Giannis puts up 24-15-8 on Bam, 32-13-4 on 57% shooting on Blake, Claxton, DJ, and Green. They played him just about as well as you can. 27-10-16 on 61% shooting. Granted, that's only in four games against the Hawks on Capella, Okongwu, really good defenders. 
I, this isn't all just on DeAndre Ayton. It's going to be on Jay Crowder and Bridges and switches. They're going to be tasked with holding Brooke Lopez, which is another big part of this, in mm-hmm. check on switches. And with what Brooke showed us in this last series, if he gets those mismatches on the inside, he's not afraid to take guys with his back to the basket, uh, face up, fading away. Uh, Brooke can get hot. Um, again, I think the biggest part of this is if Giannis is healthy, but the last two games the Bucks proved they can beat, you know, with Trey Youngless and a clearly less than 100% Trey Young squad. Um, I don't think they can beat the Hawks without Giannis at 100%, uh, but if he is there or close to it, Aiden is going to have his hands full and his work cut out for him because when Giannis has been healthy in these playoffs, he's been damn near unstoppable. Yeah, and that is obviously the major question that might decide this series is what kind of Giannis do we get? And obviously the terrifying moment when he went down with the knee injury, a lot of people thought maybe ACL ends up being a hyperextension. He is apparently fighting hard to play in game one. He has made significant progress. I am going to assume, though, given the apparent severity of the injury, that we do not get 100% Giannis. Maybe we see him in game one, but I am not assuming that we are seeing peak athletic Giannis. So I still think that he is obviously a key in how you contain him. And I think that the Suns are pretty well equipped to do it because they have the kind of variety of wings we have seen previous teams like the Heat, like the Raptors. That's the kind of personnel that you like to have to build that wall against Giannis. And I think that Jay Crowder is an ideal option who we saw contribute to that Heat effort at 235, incredibly strong base. You're not moving him easily. Macau Bridges is certainly not as strong with still a really high-level perimeter defender with the length and the physical tools to impact anybody there. And then I think that Aiton is an ideal guy to just kind of park basically in that painted area and do what we saw Blake and Capella try to do against Giannis, and that is make him settle. And if he gets all the way downhill, meet him at the rim with your best interior defender. And so I think that Aiton is probably the answer. And I'm not too worried about Brooke because the thing with Brooke is we saw him abuse guys out of the post when Giannis was off the court and there was so much more space to work with. And we've seen him do that before, but when Giannis is out there, he is inevitably relegated to that floor spacing role. Like that is what he becomes. They are not going to have two guys cramping each other on the interior there. And even if they do, if it's Crowder switched onto him, you know, Brooke can take his turnaround. He can take his hook. I mean, the hook is pretty high percentage, but like Brooke Lopez is statistically an average post player, and if you put a guy with the physical strength of Jay Crowder on him, I can live with that if it means I get Aiton on Giannis affecting those shots at the rim, trying to take away those shots entirely. So I think that they have pretty good personnel to handle Giannis. What do you think? Do you think it's going to be easier for them than it was for the Hawks or the Nets? Do you think they're going to have a higher degree of difficulty? I mean, I think they've definitely, I think you laid it out. They've got tremendous personnel to fight against it. Uh, I don't know, though, man. I'm a little more scared of Brooke than you. I get what you're saying with the spacing on the floor when Giannis is uh, when Giannis is out there, but like genuinely after that game, bro, Brooke Lopez terrifies me. I think he could dot up uh, Bridges. And, like I know that they're they have physical tools, but I don't know, bro. Brooks just got good touch. Yeah, no, he obviously made a living for a long time being more than anything a great post scorer. I just think. There's a reason they don't turn to it every time out because there are a lot of favorable matchups for Brooke. There are a lot of times when teams are playing small ball fives against him where he could do that, but it's a lot tougher when Giannis is out there trying to operate in that same painted area. And that's why, again, we see him become the floor spacer. So you don't think, though, you don't think that the Suns should automatically switch things and go f- straight up Giannis versus Aiden? Who do you think they turn to first? Like, who draws that first assignment on Giannis? Is it Crowder or Bridges? No, I like Giannis on Aiden, straight up. I, I think that oh. they can totally do that, but I also think they would be fine using Crowder as a primary defender. I'd prefer him to Bridges because of the strength. The thing is... The reason I want Aiden on him is because they do have that floor spacing five, and you don't want Aiden away from the paint at all because you're losing your greatest defensive asset then. And I would just say the formula has been laid out there. Like Giannis stopped settling as much as the first series went along and uh, throughout the Hawks series as well when he was out there and healthy. So maybe you're not going to have him take seven or eight threes a game as you would love to. But I don't think he's going to find it very easy to finish against DeAndre Ayton time and again, time and again. It's going to be physically taxing, and it's just going to be a really tough thing to do against one of the best rim protectors in basketball. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I agree. I think that's uh, I think that's exactly what they should do too. I just thought initially uh, you wanted Aiden on Lopez, uh, but uh, let's get into it then, Carson. What's your first key? Yeah, I'm fine with Crowder on Lopez. As I said, I think he's strong enough, and that man is a dog, so I trust him there. So my first key is not really one thing about either team in particular. It's just about the pace of play in this series and how it's going to unfold because these two teams are very different in the pace that they like to play at. Regular season, the Bucks were second in the league in pace. Alongside the Wizards, nobody was more reliant on that transition offense. It's what their bread and butter was, obviously, with Giannis spearheading that effort. And then for the Suns, it was that slow pick-and-roll half-court offense, CP and Book dissecting teams. They were 24th in pace. And throughout the playoffs, their numbers have converged and gotten closer and closer together, gotten lower on both ends because that's just how playoff basketball works. It's why we've seen the Bucs struggle so much in the past. Things slow down. The Bucs, though, are still... They were the leading transition scoring team out of any of the conference finalists. Like, it is their bread and butter. And if they are able to get out in transition, and this is really contingent upon Giannis being out there, that is when they are most effective still. They're not always the most efficient transition team, but they are the team that likes to go there the most. And transition offense generally is just effective. And the Suns are an efficient transition team. They've got shooters, obviously, who can make teams pay there. They've got good decision makers, but they love to slow the game down. They love to grind out those wins. We have not seen a lot of overwhelming offense in the Sun series to this point. And we haven't with the Bucs either. I mean, the Bucs have gotten to this point on the back of their defense, but I still think, ideally for them, they would love to speed this series up. I don't think it's going to be possible, though. They haven't been able to really do it thus far. I feel like Atlanta was the fastest-paced series they had, and maybe a couple games they really got the transition offense rolling there, but for the most part, they have to find a way to produce in the half court. But... I think that that's a battle that favors the Suns. So seeing how they handle that exchange, I think is going to be pretty important and interesting in deciding how this series play, uh, plays out. Oh, I think it's one of the biggest, especially with the Bucks, as you highlighted. And honestly, a key that I wrote down in this is if you're getting eaten alive by Giannis, it's not even just Giannis, because there's a lot of guys who can run the floor, run the break in transition for this Bucks squad. You know, P.J. Tucker, Holiday, Lopez, like whoever's finishing off, I trust them to finish strong. Um, I might honestly tell Aiden, tell everybody uh, on the Suns, just drop back, like if you got to. Screw the offensive boards. And I know it hurts because Aiden uh, was one of the best offensive rebounding bigs uh, in the NBA this season and has been in the playoffs, uh, about 3.4 a game. So it hurts where you're going to be losing extra possessions there. But if you're getting eaten alive uh, on the break, I'd say screw it. I'd drop them all because if you limit those points, the Bucks are a bad half-court team. Like, I don't think that's changed in these playoffs. They're still an unreliable half-court team. I would try to limit as many fast-break points uh, as possible if I'm Phoenix. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing is that neither of these teams have been good offenses. And I touched on this in the video I did about how defense and depth have defined these playoffs. We're looking at the number 10 playoff offense out of 16 teams in Phoenix and the number 11 playoff offense out of 16 teams in the Bucks. But you're looking at the top two playoff defenses. That's how they've gotten here. Make no mistake about it. And it's interesting that you touch on not placing that emphasis on crashing the glass offensively for the Suns because I think rebounding is going to be a key battleground in this series. And I agree with you that getting back is going to be important, but the Suns are also going to have to make sure they secure the rebounds on the defensive end because the Bucs have been the best rebounding team in these playoffs, grabbing 53% of available rebounds and particularly on the offensive end, have been outstanding. I think they're grabbing 31% of available offensive boards, and it felt like down the stretch against Atlanta, that's what killed them. Atlanta's a good rebounding team, it feels like, that fights really hard on the glass, but man, they just could not end a possession as they were trying to launch that comeback in the fourth quarter because there's a lot of really good rebounders on this Bucks team. You have... Your center is not even close to your best rebounder pound for pound in Brooke Lopez. Obviously, that's not one of his defining traits, although he is definitely pretty darn good at boxing guys out, just doesn't always secure the board. But P.J. Tucker, obviously, huge plus rebounder. Middleton is rebounding well. Holiday's a good rebounder for his size. And so when they go big with Portis out there as well, he's a guy who can just clean up on the glass. And the Suns opposite them have been the number 15 out of 16 teams as far as offensive rebounding they are pretty much an average rebounding team across the board because outside of Aiton, they don't have a major plus in that category. So I just think, obviously, it's key in every matchup. You're securing possessions, you're ending possessions, but I think when anybody's playing Milwaukee, 
it's key. And again, I think it was kind of the nail in the coffin for that Atlanta team. It's just they got beaten on the glass down the stretch against the Bucs. And you can't really have that happen because for an offense that hasn't been dynamic, every time you breathe life into them and you get sort of that chaotic second chance where things open up a little bit, it's scary. It's life that you would rather they not have. And it'll be interesting to see how the Suns handle it. Also, what do you think they should do? Would you prioritize getting back in transition or crashing the glass? Well, I would prioritize getting back in transition, I think, because I'm not as worried about the Suns getting a ton of second chances for themselves. I don't think it's a great sign. I think always crash Aiden. Like, he is far and away your best rebounder. He's the guy most likely to get an opportunity there. And also, Aiden in transition, what's he going to do? He has to hang with Brooke Lopez for the most part. Like, you're not getting your rim protector set in those situations. So, I think he has to still be there as that force. But I think everybody else, it's more important that you get back in transition, generally speaking. But it's really important that they just really fight on the defensive end. And, like, I don't think there is a tactical thing to say. I mean, it's rebounding. It's about positioning, and it's about effort, and it's about instincts. And that's an area in which the Bucks excel. That's an area in which the Suns have to find a way to, you know, battle respectably. Another area I think that the Bucks excel in uh, in this matchup as well is uh, defensive versatility throughout the lineup. Like outside of Brooke Lopez, every one of these guys is really switchable. And uh, to me, I think a key for the Bucks is just switch everything, fight over every screen. And the two most important things you got to do, obviously, when attacking CP3, Devin Booker uh, out of the pick and roll. Like I said, switch everything, just run them off their spots. And I mean, when they get that screen at the top of the key, I don't care who it is, if it's P.J. Tucker, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, you can switch any of these guys onto anybody. Like, outside of Brooke Lopez, everybody can go anywhere. Um, I just think the most important thing defensively for Milwaukee, don't drop and give them those shots because you're going to be playing into D-Book and CP3's hands. Um, I think that's pretty obvious for Coach Bud, but I really never know with Milwaukee what they're going to do schematically. Uh, I think that's the most important thing defensively, though. You've got a bunch of versatile defenders. Use them wisely. Because, you, like you said, Carson, both these teams have been elite defenses, and they both have really good personnel to counteract what these teams are going to try to do offensively. Um, I don't think the Bucks are going to do it effectively enough to win this series, but I think they've got enough personnel to make life tough uh, on Chris Paul and Devin Booker in the mid-range and from the perimeter. Yeah, I mean, the Bucks have been outstanding defensively throughout these playoffs. They are pretty comfortably the number one playoff defense, and it's been impressive because historically their defense hasn't aged as well when it comes to the postseason time, and they haven't been just hemorrhaging threes like we saw previously, and they've been guarding the three-point line pretty well. They're holding opposing teams to 34% shooting from deep. Some of that is maybe randomness, but obviously they also have some weapons on the perimeter defensively. I think that this is absolutely a key because... The Suns' offense is pick and roll in a ton of ways. I mean, your two best players, their primary weapons with the ball in their hands is offense out of that pick and roll. Chris Paul, 58% of his offense in these playoffs has come out of pick and roll. Book is above 30%. Like, these are whopping numbers. As a team, 24% of their offense is pick and roll. That's one of the higher numbers of the teams in these playoffs. I just think you are right in that, obviously, you cannot fully drop Brooke Lopez into the paint because Book, CP, they're not dependent on getting all the way into that restricted area. What I will say, though, is depending on where the screen is set, I don't think fighting over is always the move. Like, if the screen is set at the three-point line, which it often is, go under, but meet the ball handler pretty early. Like, don't drop all the way back into the paint, get to that free-throw line, and then I trust Brooke Lopez to hang with a guy inside of 15 feet. I mean, as we saw Zubats do pretty admirably against CP and Book, they're not going to blow by people a ton. And I think we saw Brook actually battle pretty well with Trey once he made that adjustment to start meeting him at the free throw line because that's a big body to get around, man. And especially in that game six, we saw Trey force some really tough looks that Brook was affecting that are low percentage opportunities for him. So I think that if you are going to play these guys, Book's shooting 41% for mid-range in these playoffs. CP is shooting 49% for mid-range in these playoffs. Like, CP, that's a pretty deadly number from a tough area to shoot from. But my point is, that's not crazy efficient offense. You need to respect it. You need to take it away. But I think that Brook can make life hard on them with those shots. So, I just don't think going over 
is the answer because, like, maybe the three ball is more efficient for those guys, but they don't want to shoot it, man. Like, how often do you see those guys take the three unless they are really left wide open, which maybe becomes a problem, but their instinct is quickly get around that screen, drift into the mid-range jumper, and I think that Brooke can do a pretty good job of hanging with them in that area. What do you think about all that? I think you're right, um, although, I don't know, I wouldn't put, um, uh, the only reason I put as much emphasis on fighting over screens is just because what we have seen from the Bucks in the past, just because we know that they like to drop guys. Um, no, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I don't think that, I think you're sliding and switching everything because that's what you have to do in the modern NBA to prevent open looks. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to lay, a, a lot of this lays on Brook Lopez, and if he's getting, you say you've got confidence in him, uh, Brooks. I know he's tall. He's got long arms. I just—he's not extremely mobile. Do you think that if Brooks getting beat at all, should the Bucks look to maybe Giannis defensively at the five, PJ Tucker defensively at the five? Like, uh, should mm-hmm. they explore any of those options? I think it's possible. What I'm saying is that I think that in spite of his lack of mobility, what is actually favorable for Brook is that Devin Booker and Chris Paul shorten the court. I mean, they make it to where you guard them within 15 feet. And yeah, you can't give them space because they will pull instantly and they are two of the best mid-range jump shooters in basketball. But if you can hang within 15 feet, which is not as hard to do because again, neither of them are lightning quick athletes with a full head of steam blowing by you from beyond the arc, then you can survive that matchup. And I think that Brooke Lopez actually can do that. It may be that he's getting cooked time and again and that You know, once they get the switch, they drag him back out to the three-point line and they cook him from there. But we haven't seen Book and CP do that all that consistently throughout these playoffs. They want to get into that mid-range area. And I think that Brook is moderately well-equipped to actually hang there. But as you said, I mean, if they are fully dropping Brook Lopez, if they are doing what the Nuggets were doing with Jokic against CP, good night. Those are wide-open practice jumpers all day long. And you just can't lose that way. You have to at least make them uncomfortable and take away their primary option. So I'll give another key for the Suns here. And I think that although that mid-range shooting will always be key because that is CP and Book, their primary weapon, what they love to get to, I think the shooting around them is going to be really important from beyond the arc because the Suns are a good shooting team, but they are not one of the most dynamic, voluminous three-point shooting teams in basketball. In these playoffs, they're making 11 threes a game on 37% from there. And there's a couple of strong shooters in this starting lineup. Obviously, Bridges is a dead eye. Jay Crowder is as hot and cold as they come. And throughout these playoffs, has kind of settled at a pretty solid 37%. Has had some fantastic games. Has had some colder games. Torrey Craig is another guy who's kind of hot and cold. So, Cam Johnson is one of the better shooters out there. Campaign is a pretty good shooter. But I just think, when you're looking at teams that have dynamic offenses, oftentimes it's, Who can just bomb away from beyond the arc? I mean, it's part of the reason we saw the Clippers survive up to this point. It's part of the reason why the Bucs were such a deadly regular season offense. Like, so many teams are predicated on that. And I do think that although the Suns have been able to survive by playing elite defense, we've seen their offensive rating go down from 116.3 in the regular season to 113.6 in the playoffs. And, of course, you expect some drop-off. Offense is tougher in the playoffs. But a lot of offenses actually got better, and the Suns are not among them. They are, again... 10th out of the pack of 16 right now as opposed to 7th out of a pack of 30 to in the regular season. So I think that having that dynamic shooting and converting on those opportunities is going to be massive. And if they are going under screens for CP, for Book, maybe you got to take a few more of those threes because obviously we know these guys can shoot the ball from beyond the arc. Need I remind you of what we saw in Game 6 against the Clippers? CP was 7 of 8 when they gave him to him. And if that does happen then I think Brooke probably gets played off the court because then he's just not mobile enough and uh, the Suns are just going to have their pick of whatever good shot they want out of the pick and roll all day long. That's an interesting, uh, I don't know, that's something interesting I hadn't really considered about this as a potential danger for the Suns in this matchup. Their offense moves stylistically really similarly to the Hawks and how they create shots. And I'm not saying that like, uh, the Hawks have anybody at the caliber of CP3 or Devin Booker, although Trey's good, but in the way that they manufacture their offense, in uh, difficult shots, a lot of stuff in the mid-range, a lot of catch-and-shoot threes created by guys getting into there. I don't know, man. I That kind of, I don't know, it changes my perspective on this series a little bit because 
If the Suns go cold a little bit, if they're not hitting those difficult shots, which I trust them to, but if they go cold for an evening, the Bucks are a team that can kill you from behind the arc game to game. Like, Bryn Forbes can get hot. Middleton can get hot. Holiday can get hot. They all showed us that in this last game versus the Hawks. The Bucks are... I don't know. I always think of the Bucks as a poor shooting team. They can get hot and win a few more games. I hadn't thought about that. That's a... Uh, that's something that swings in the Bucks' favor. Do you... Do you think the Sun? Do you think the Bucks are the hardest matchup that the Suns have drawn uh, offensively? Like in how the Bucks or what the Bucks have personnel-wise, and who they've already played. In how the Bucks can defend the Suns. Do you think the? I guess. Do you think the Bucks are more well equipped to defend the Suns than any team that Phoenix has faced thus far? I think the Lakers were pretty well equipped, but I think the Lakers also did a really good job. I mean, Phoenix did not blow them off the court with offense. They blew them off the court by the Lakers failing to create any offense in that series. I think that AD is kind of a nightmare five for the Suns to have to face with his switchability and rim protection and all the tools that he has out there. But the Bucks are definitely among the toughest. I mean, you sick Drew Holiday on Book. That's tough, man. Book, as we talked about, last episode is going to have to try to find a variety of ways to score there. It's not easy to get buckets on Drew Holiday from anywhere on the court. I mean, even when Biggs post him up. The only advantage they have is a height advantage. They shoot over him. They don't move him easily at all. And we know what he can do on the perimeter guarding traditional guards. And then with CP, maybe you don't have as troubling of an answer. And maybe they end up putting Drew Holiday on CP. I don't know. We'll see how that turns out. But you have switchable guys who can guard the perimeter. So there are a lot of answers there. And you have your rim protector in Brooke Lopez. So they are absolutely a tough matchup. They've been the best playoff defense. And... I think that this is going to be a massive test of what the Suns can do because, again, they've gotten here without having to have punchy, dynamic offense every time out, and they could get into a grind of a series, and then it's okay. CP goes berserk in the closing minutes, or Book individually has a massive game. But they're going to need the reliable shooting. And I will say, opposite them, right now the Bucks are making as many threes per game as the Suns are. It's 11.3. That's tied for 10th out of the playoff field. That is not normal for Milwaukee. They're shooting 31% from deep in these playoffs. They are taking 36 a game, which is a lot more than the Suns. Like, they are more dependent on that three-point shooting. And maybe they are due for some hot shooting nights because they had one against the Hawks. They ended up not shooting a crazy high percentage in Game 6. It felt like they were knocking down a ton of them early, though. But I don't know, man. I just feel like maybe the Bucks are going to start shooting better at some point. I mean, Drew Holiday has started to find his rhythm more. Middleton is getting more consistent. Forbes is out there. Portis is a guy who's getting more minutes and was a 47% three-point shooter in the regular season, even if he doesn't love to take a ton of them. That's a concerning matchup. If the Bucks dominate this series from behind the arc, that could be troublesome. Obviously, it always is, but I see the potential for that happening a little bit more in this series. Let's touch on that, uh, Middleton's consistency. Like, I know that we talk about this damn near every episode, but obviously this is going to be another huge storyline to watch on the Bucks side is... Uh, you threw out these stats uh, last week, Carson, uh, on the show. Uh, in wins here in the playoffs, uh, he's putting up, you know, 31 points, a, or excuse me, 26 points a game. In losses, he's putting up 17. He's shooting 15% from behind the arc in losses. Like, Chris Middleton is the most valuable player on this Bucks offense. And, I mean, I think that was even, like, dude, he does it every game, too. This last game against the Hawks. First half, the man is ice cold, doesn't want the ball, is not trying to create anything for himself. He's passive, and he's not hitting his shots. And then in the second half, he hits one three to open up, and it immediately flips his switch. He gets super hot. He starts knocking down everything. He's aggressive, getting to the rack. Chris Middleton is absolutely polarizing. He makes me scratch my head. He is going to be, in my opinion... I don't know. I can't say more valuable than Giannis, but he is just as important in the Bucks coming away with a win in this series. He has got to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, Giannis is obviously crucial because we don't know what version of him we'll get. Like, the variability there means he's probably the most key guy. But in a normal world where you can rely on Giannis to do his thing for the most part, Middleton is the swing guy. He is the most important guy for the Bucks, And Props to both him and Drew for stepping up in a huge way in games five and six. I mean, Drew has been commanding the game, doing some of his best facilitating in a long time, but also scoring the ball at a really high clip. And after game four, neither of them showed up. They both played bad games. They were, 
like six for 17 and seven for 21, something like that. It was a really off night from both of them. And I was like, this is what you get with them. They're hot and cold. And then they came out and played some of their best basketball. And I'll just elaborate on the Middleton stats that you gave there because it's not just the raw scoring numbers. It's 26, eight and a half and five and a half on 49, 42, 90 splits and wins. And it's 17, seven and four on 31% from the field and 15% from three in losses. Now, there have been more wins than losses, and Milton has been brilliant in a lot of those games, but his efficiency throughout these playoffs as a whole is subpar because of how ugly those off nights have been, and they can't tolerate those. If Giannis is not himself, you need your dynamic perimeter creator every time out, and Drew, I feel like, has punched above his weight as a scorer these past couple games. I just don't trust him to be a consistent 25-point-per-game guy and Middleton, maybe consistent isn't the word that would define him, but I know he has that high ceiling as a scorer. I know that when he's locked in, nobody can stop him for the most part. Very strange player, going to be pivotal in how this series plays out. And I'll highlight another guy who is not at that star level, but is maybe a nerd sesh star, and a guy who I think is going to be pivotal in his own way, and that's Bobby Portis. That's crazy eyes killer. As they say, Logan, you're disappointed. You can talk about whoever you want to next, all right? But let's give the Portman some love here. Bobby Portis over P.J. Tucker, baby. You know, this is something I've been feeling inside for a long time, but I was always passive about it. I was like, well, at least they're playing, Bobby. At least they're giving him his 20 minutes a game. I think he's better than P.J. Tucker, but clearly they want to play P.J. 30-plus minutes a game. What happens when you put Bobby in, in games five and six? Totals 34 and 17 over those two games. 30-plus minutes in each of them. The dude is just an all-around weapon offensively. He's a dog. He fights on the glass. He's a skilled scorer who can do it from all three levels. I want Bobby Portis minutes. PJ, I mean, helps you defensively. Where is his tremendous value in this series? I guess that he can switch on to guys on both the perimeter and the interior. I'm just more worried about producing consistent offense for both teams in this series because that's been where they've lagged behind. Defense, never been an issue for either of these teams consistently creating high-level offense has kind of been an issue throughout these playoffs, even though they were great regular season offenses. So in that case, where that is the top priority, give me Bobby freaking Portis. What do you say? <laughs> um, I want Crazy-Eyed Killer added to Bobby Portis's basketball reference page. Uh, that I know. Um, Working on it. I completely agree. Uh, I... I don't know, man. P.J. Tucker gets heralded as a really good, like, on-ball defender, and he's versatile. I'll give him that. He's a really good uh, rebounder as well. Like, P.J. Tucker doesn't make sense the way he can grab so many boards, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think that the gap between him and Bobby Portis as a defender and a rebounder is not big enough to justify playing him when mm -hmm. Bobby just gives you so much more offensively. He's a better shooter. Like, he's more aggressive in the post. He can just do more because he's bigger uh, down there on the low block. Like, I don't know, man. I, yeah, I think Bobby Portis uh, needs more minutes. And the only reason I was disappointed, I just thought we were going to get a classic Carson Breber campaign spiel, and uh, I was just gearing myself up. Ah, uh, yeah. Cam's, Cam's role in this series is going to be interesting because he's always important in the non-CP minutes, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse talking about how he's one of the few reliable, true creators on this team. He's always going to matter. But for whatever reason, I'm just not feeling that he's going to be as key right now. Maybe it's because they have CP and Book at full strength and because of what we just saw CP do, eviscerating, obviously, the Clippers down the stretch. Cam is going to be important. He plays a unique role on this team. He always does. I don't know if I need to give the whole spiel again, though. I kind of give it every other episode, and I think that a lot of that remains true in this series. He's one of their most important players, and... I mean, he has the tools to do well, but he's going to be facing some tough defenders, no question, on the perimeter, unless he gets that Bryn Forbes matchup a lot, in which case, Cam's going to eat, baby. But he's going to have a tough time with Brooke, because, like, he loves those tough finishes, man, and Brooke is up. He swats that stuff, man. He's going to say, no, no, no. Are there any other, like, big role players uh, for each team that you think could swing this series? Like, the two guys I think I'd highlight are probably like Jeff Teague and Cam Johnson out of the guys we haven't mentioned mm. yet. Um, but uh, are there any other guys uh, that you think could swing this series uh, if they uh, perform well? Well, Jeff Teague sucks, all right? So I don't know what made you say that. I mean, he had a good game in game six because he knocked down open threes. He's bad. I don't think he should play. What's your Jeff Teague case? 
No, he's hitting his open threes. Any guy who's hitting his open yeah. threes is a valuable player. Okay, what about Brinley Forbes the third? He's a little bit more scary to me. Yeah, I mean, when he's out there, he's just such a defensive liability, bruh. Yeah, who cares, though? Jeff Teague is a bonehead. Give me the sharpshooter. <laughs> I think Bryn is a guy who can swing this series with the shooting from beyond the arc. I think Cam Johnson is an interesting choice on the other end because Cam, even though he started for a lot of this season, you know, there haven't been that many games that he's really swung in these playoffs, it feels like. I guess I shouldn't say that he started for a lot of this season, but there was that stretch where they went to him instead of Crowder. But yeah, man, Cam is just a good all-around basketball player. Great shooter from beyond the arc, competitive player, can do a little bit with that floater in the mid-range area. I think that campaign is always the default answer here. I think that Forbes is an interesting one. And I do just need to shout out Torrey Craig because, first of all, the <laughs> night before Torrey Craig played a fantastic game six, I had a dream that he was in the All-Star game. Maybe it was two nights before. And I was like, why is Torrey Craig in the All-Star game? First possession. Anthony Davis coming down the court looking for obviously a classic all-star game highlight dunk. Torrey just strips him effortlessly, man. He's going the other way. Everybody's shocked. This is the all-star game. This is now we play. Torrey didn't care. You think Torrey cares? Torrey's just fighting for his spot in the league. Now he's in the all-star game making defensive heads-up plays. That dream was really telling of the future. And I think that Torrey Craig can be impactful in this series. I mean, yeah, sometimes he makes boneheaded decisions offensively. I don't want him shooting anything other than open threes and dunks. But defensively, he's another guy you can throw into that rotation on Giannis, a guy who I should have mentioned earlier because he's another really strong body. Even if he doesn't have the size advantage, he can make it tough for a guy to get to his spots. And then if he's playing well enough offensively, he can just give you quality minutes. He's interesting. I mean, there are so many great role players for the Suns. I would love to say Dario Saric could do something. We haven't seen it in these playoffs. For a guy who had such brilliant stretches in this regular season, he really hasn't mattered in the postseason, but he's another offensive weapon, another versatile guy. So I just like the Suns to have more players in that category. Like, Book, Aiton, CP are obviously going to lead the charge with Bridges and Crowder right behind them playing 30-plus minutes a game, but that bench is not to be trifled with, and... The Bucks, Bobby is that guy who I look like, who I look at. Maybe Bryn if he gets going, but they don't have the same variety of options. Any other role guys for you? Any comments on any of the role guys who I listed? I mean, I'm pretty sure, though, uh, you talk about Torrey giving a lot of effort defensively, and I think he will. Didn't Torrey get a ring regardless? Yeah. You think he cares, though? I've known Torrey a long time, man. Torrey's a dog. He doesn't care. <laughs> he wants the right ring. He wants that Suns ring, baby. So who is out of the guys you highlighted then? Because, uh, I mean, I think you said it. I don't really think there's a whole lot of difference makers on the Bucks. Like maybe, <laughs> like, what are you going to say, Pat Connaughton? Uh, no. Um, yeah. Who do you think is the biggest uh, out of the guys we've mentioned off the bench? Is it Bobby Portis? Is he the biggest swing bench guy in this series? Yes, I think so. And he may not even be a bench guy in this series. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if going forward he has the starting nod. I think that he did a great job getting those bigger minutes and gave them the offensive punch that they needed. Like, that's what was so impressive about Game 5 to me. Because maybe it's obvious, like, oh, you get 33 points from Brooke Lopez, you get 20-something from Bobby Portis. Yeah, that's great. But that's what this team desperately needed. I mean, that's what we kept on complaining about with this Bucks team. It's that you only have so many creators. And when those creators, when one of them is out of commission in Giannis and the other two are unreliable, you can kind of get screwed. And then we saw the kind of guys who can just get their own bucket step up. Guys who will never not be valuable. Like Lou Williams is the perimeter equivalent. Guys who can just go out there and get their own shot matter in the playoffs. Game 5 was the epitome of why it was exactly what they needed more than what any other team could have needed from their role, guys. And Bobby gives you that. Bobby gives you something that PJ can't. And I think that he's maybe more important than any son. I mean, campaign does a unique job commanding the game in stretches. But at the end of the day, your two best players are guards and there are times where you can survive without a big campaign game. I think that the Bucs need a lot out of Bobby Portis here. Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, obviously Middleton and Holiday are more important just because they are yeah. more they have higher volume from behind the arc. But off the bench? Yeah, I'd probably say it's between him and Bryn Forbes. And the only reason I say Bryn is just because they can put him in there and if he's left open, he can make you pay uh, down a stretch. But... uh. 
Yeah, I think they should start Bobby, man. I wouldn't ch- uh, trot PJ out there. I'd run Giannis at the three, PJ at the or Bobby at the four, Brooke at the five, and we riding. Honestly, man, that's a that's a scary defensive lineup, dude. The only thing that concerns me with Bobby is that you have to kind of tell him to shoot a lot of threes because he can shoot the three. I mean, as I said, forty seven percent this year, but not on high volume. He is still. Kind of a traditional post player. I mean, he's got a lot of skill. He can handle. He can shoot. But if you're going to play him with Giannis and Brooke, you need to say, hey, Bobby, we need you to be a dead-eye shooter. And uh, you hope he can buy into it. He's definitely a confident guy. He likes to play his own way. But I also believe Bobby Portis is a winner and a family man. And I trust him with all my heart to step up. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Do um, uh, you got any more keys? Or uh, are you ready for your uh, prediction? Well, let's slow down, Logan. I mean, we don't need to rush all the way there. As far as specific basketball keys, I think that we've touched on a lot of the most important stuff. But I think there's a lot of other storyline stuff here that I would like to touch on before we spoil the big reveal at the end, okay? We'll get there. I want to talk about what's on the line for some guys here, though. Let's start with Coach Bud. What's on the line for Coach Bud here? I mean, like, honestly... Coach Bud's entire legacy is kind of on the line here riding on this finals. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to pigeonhole him to this series for the rest of eternity. Like, he didn't get it done in Atlanta. Um, he put together a lot of good teams. He didn't get it done here. And, I mean, I thought the Bucks were going to be done in the second round against Brooklyn, and I thought the ending yeah. for Coach Bud, you know, going into this offseason was going to be, does he have a job next year? This is a complete reversal, like – I don't think his job's on the line anymore. I think you get to the finals and the Bucks just kind of have to say, oh, well, you know, Coach Bud got us there. I don't think they can fire him anymore. But I think his legacy's on the line because I don't think, with all the injuries that happened this year, I just don't know if we ever see the Bucks get back to the finals because they're such a weird team and how they run. This is it. This is probably Coach Bud's most important series mm-hmm. of his life, and it's how we're going to measure his, uh, his career uh, <laughs> forever. Yeah, everything is on the line. I mean, it's so interesting how results-oriented our thinking can be because has Bud redeemed himself in this run? I don't know. They found a way to win a couple games without Giannis. He made some switches that he wouldn't normally have, throwing Bobby into those bigger minutes in games five and six. Overall, though, I'm still not a Coach Bud guy. I'm not a believer in how the Bucks play basketball. They've just been really fortunate. Like, they're a really good team, of course, but they would have gotten ran by the Nets. And that's not an excuse. That's not to say, you know, oh, none of this counts. It's just a pretty obvious truth. And it's a truth that can be covered up if the Bucs find a way to somehow win this series. And maybe even by the fact that they got to the finals. Because getting to the finals will buy you some time, generally speaking. But I think a ton is on the line. And I think that I, the Bucks are the team that has had the more established foundation for longer. They are the team that was the one seed for the two years before this, that the championship expectations were always there, and the door is open now. We'll see if they can close. I don't expect them to, and I was calling earlier in the playoffs for the breakup, like this is just an indication that the Bucks are not good enough. When Drew and Middleton are playing like they have been as of late, they're certainly scarier. I still don't think, though, in a normal season, that the Bucks would really be scrapping for the title. I think that the Suns have a stronger foundation. I think that they'd have more of a chance in that respect. But the Bucs are playing really good basketball. All right. Can we talk about Drew Holiday for a second? Because this has been a fascinating arc for him. I mean, after a really shaky start to the playoffs, where he could not knock down a shot from beyond the arc, and they barely got out of that Brooklyn series, in large part because he played a hideous game, played better in the fourth quarter in overtime, but could not make a shot for the majority of that one. He spent most of his career toiling away on pretty average teams. Now he has been the second best guy, maybe the best guy for a couple games at least on a team that is headed to the finals. What's at stake for him? What does this all mean for Drew Holiday? I mean, I think it's this season specifically. I mean, one, uh, this is the best Drew Holiday shot has ever been. I think the best, I think we've seen the best playmaking version Mm -hmm. of Drew Holiday in these very playoffs. Like he is, and I think it's just beautiful because finally he's just on a team that's not asking him to do too much. Like, just some guys just aren't meant to be stars. And I'm not saying that Drew Holiday isn't, but his role here is so simplified that 
and there's just so many other contributing pieces uh, where he doesn't have to be relied on as heavily, and he's thrived. This is the best Drew Holiday I think we've ever seen, and I think he's even better than he's grown so much more from that one lone all-star season in Philadelphia when he was 22. Yeah. Um, this is the best Drew Holiday we've ever seen. I don't know, like legacy-wise, I don't know, man. Like I don't really know if I look at Drew Holiday's career all that different uh, if he wins or loses this mm. series, maybe if he plays a really big role, I do. But um, I don't know. Drew's probably on the lesser uh, for guys that I really expect some. It's just nice. I'm glad he's in a role where he really fits. Uh, do you think it's a lot at stake for Drew? I just think it's interesting because obviously you give up a ton of value to get him. There have been times throughout the season when it's looked like he's not that true difference-making third guy. And then we've seen times where it's like, man, he is playing like a star on both ends in really, really big spots. And I think that he's a guy who has a ton to gain legacy-wise because Drew Holiday, without a title, is a forgettable good player. Like, that's just how we view the NBA. If you are a good player, a really good player, who could be a third guy on a title team, but instead you're the best guy or the second-best guy on a 40-something win team year in, year out, as Drew Holiday was for a long time, people just don't remember that in the same way as if you play your role on a title-winning team and that's what he has the opportunity to do here. So, yeah, it's a weird season. Uh, maybe it won't be immortalized, but a ring is a ring is a ring, and he can play a huge part in that. And I think that's really interesting. I think Chris Middleton falls into an interesting category, but there's definitely more on the line for him because, for me personally, he's been under the microscope longer. I've been more aware of his shortcomings, more aware of his role in how this Milwaukee team was structurally challenged in some respects and that he wasn't consistently good enough as that primary perimeter option and so if he can prove that he can be that in a best of seven game series and win a title I think he stands to gain a ton because he got all of his praise last year as uber efficient star level guy on a dominant team but it doesn't really matter if you don't cement it with that playoff and sometimes even finals dominance and that's what he has the chance to do. And I don't know. I have a little bit more faith in him going right now than I have previously. Although I still think because he doesn't get to the line a ton, because it's always dependent on that tough jump shot making, it's kind of always a sketchy proposition with him. You're talking about Middleton. Yeah. I think Middleton stands a lot to gain. I mean, honestly, like, yeah. contextualizing where he came from, you know, getting moved to Milwaukee for nothing, for pennies, for Brandon Jennings. Uh, you know, used to be in the G League. Like, this is a it's a big arc for him. But also, I mean, I don't know. I think we look at Chris Middleton in a drastically different way just because me and uh, we know that Chris has to play great basketball for the Bucks to win this series. Like, I think he has a lot to – Chris has a lot to uh, earn. And he will – if the – I don't know. I guess, again, we shouldn't be so results-oriented based. But if the Bucks win this series, I think I'll finally let off on Middleton a little bit. Yeah. No, a Bucks title would rock my world, dude. I mean, I have been the anti-Bucks guy for three years. I have been critical of how their team was constructed over and over and over again from their best player and their coach on down. And uh, this would disrupt a lot of that thinking. Now, I will say, if they don't win at all, I think it's pretty easy to look and say, okay, they beat a Nets team by an inch that they had no business beating if they were fully healthy. And they got past a Hawks team that I believed in, and I still think put up a good fight in that series that didn't have Trey 100% himself. Although I don't think that excuse really holds up because the Bucs didn't have Giannis, obviously, as himself either down the stretch of that one. So I don't think that everything that they've done up to this point invalidates the criticisms. But if they win the title, man, doesn't matter. Like, you got the ultimate job done. Once you win one, a lot of those flaws can be forgotten. And... I still don't think that they're going to do it necessarily, but they certainly have a fighting chance to. Any other legacy stuff or storylines generally that really interest you, or should we just get into our predictions here and stop keeping the people waiting? And I want to say uh, one last thing, though. I mean, Brett Favre threw a lot of interceptions, Carson, but uh, we don't really think of those. You know, we think of uh, the title wins. I, you're right, man. A lot, of the, a lot of the knocks we got on these guys go away. Like... <laughs> I don't know, bro. It just feels weird to say that if the Bucks win this, I, we, were, we were just wrong about Coach Bud and Giannis. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy because I don't think that that's true. Like, that's the reality we'll be living in. Those criticisms will not matter anymore, but I don't think they will have been ill-founded. Like, the golden opportunity opened for them. And now they got to finish the job, and they're going up against a team who also kind of had the golden opportunity open up for them. 
And this is going to be a really interesting clash between these two teams. What do you think ends up happening? What's your prediction? Uh, my official prediction is Suns in seven. Uh, mm. I think this is a gritty series. I think it is really defensive, but uh, I don't know if Giannis is at full health. That is the biggest question going forward. And because I don't know about Giannis's health, I'm going to lead in Phoenix. But I don't know, man. I, I think it's I think it's competitive whether he's out there or not. Like uh, the ultimate deciding factor for me, obviously, is Chris Paul and Devin Booker and their difficult shot making. I just trust them to create more consistent offense than I do the Bucks, mm-hmm. and that is ultimately where I draw the line. Um, but it's going to be gritty, man. Like Drew and Middleton are going to have some good games. I think Brooke Lopez can turn back the clock a little bit. I think we're in for one hell of a series if Giannis is out there or not, but yeah, I don't think he's at a hundred percent. And, uh, so I'm going Phoenix, man. I, I think the Suns get it done. This is wild because I just didn't think that we would be getting a version of Giannis that looked anything like himself. I mean, I was thinking Suns and five, this is going to be rolling them over. And it just doesn't seem like that's the case. I mean, Giannis is apparently close, and unless he is AD and he goes out there and it's like, oh, this guy can't actually play. He's just trying to play. I wouldn't expect that to be the case. That's scary, man, because the Bucks have, I think, three guys you can say, maybe not as reliable always night to night, but they have a big three, if you will. And the Suns have Aiden, who has played up to the level at times of a star third guy, but offensively just doesn't have the same level of creation that any of those three Milwaukee guys do. And even though I like the Suns' depth more, I trust their top two guys more, the power of that big three can be scary. And so I think it's really close. I'm going to take the Suns. I guess I'll go Suns in seven. Like, I thought I was going to go Suns in six coming into this podcast, but the more I've thought about what a healthy Giannis can do, the more I've thought, you know what? I think Suns and Seven is the safer bet, and I think that there is a world in which the Bucks could pull it out, which I didn't really feel was the case. Again, running under the assumption that Giannis would not be himself, but I'm not going to give up on the guys who I trust more. I mean, I trust the variety of difference makers in Phoenix. I trust Chris Paul. I trust Devin Booker. It's going to be a grind, dude, like you said. like This is not going to be a high-flying offensive series, and I do just have that bit more faith in the Bucks' offense to have those real explosive days because, again, They've shot 31% from deep in these playoffs. That will not continue. I would be shocked if it did, and that's scary. And um, uh, firing on all cylinders, Middleton, scary. Giannis on any day, scary. Holiday, the way he's been playing these last couple games, scary. But I don't trust them to sustain that in the same way that I trust the Suns to sustain what they have going. I think in close, grinded-out games, I always lean Phoenix, and that's why I'm going to go with the Suns. I think they're better coached, and I trust their depth more top-to-bottom. And I just believe in, yeah, having that factor where a certain guy can step up and win you a game a little bit more than I believe in it with the Bucs. Game five for Milwaukee was the exception where I was like, whoa, Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis can step up and win them a game. But that's kind of the first time it's happened, whereas the Suns throughout the playoffs have had guys do that. They've had impact players come out of nowhere like a Torrey Craig. They've had campaign win them games single-handedly when CP is not himself or not single-handedly, but play fantastic games in replacement of him. And so I'm going to bet on that. If the uh, obviously we can't say for certain now, but if the Bucks win and they get this thing done, is this like the least impressive like title run ever? Interesting question. I mean, we discussed on last episode the incredible fortune that the Suns have had. Most impressive, I don't know. Anticlimactic, I also don't know because they had a pretty wild Game Seven against the Nets. Just weird, man. Just not what I expected. This has not been the playoff basketball I expected. I thought that the Nets were going to finish the Bucks. I mean, <laughs> through two games, that looked pretty easily justified. And they just never got the pieces all together. So I don't even know how to put myself in the shoes of a Carson Brever two and a half weeks from now in which the Bucks are sitting there as NBA champions. That kind of melts my mind, the fact that that's a possibility. And I don't think it happens. Clearly, we have bet against the Bucs kind of every step of the way. And I still think that this is their best team ever. I mean, this is what I said coming into these playoffs. Like, I thought they were really going to put up a fight with the Nets. I thought that was going to go seven. I just thought they were going to lose. And I thought that even coming into the playoffs when I thought the Nets were going to be healthy. Like, this is the best Milwaukee team, especially with the level they found defensively. In the regular season, that defense took a step back, and now it's been their best playoff defense yet. It's a really, really, really good team 
It's not a traditional champion, though. But do the Suns feel like a traditional champion either? I mean, they don't have the top five guy. They don't have a ton of even experienced role guys around them. It's just a wild year. Yeah. I don't know. The I guess just <laughs> CP and Book, that's the only difference. They feel like they've just got the two better creators. That's literally the only difference, yeah. bro. Yeah. And Book is going to be massive here. I mean, we didn't talk about him as much in this one. We talked a little bit last episode about the adjustments he needs to make as a scorer, but you cannot have a Devin Booker 38% shooting series like we just did. You need to find a way, if you're him, to get to those spots consistently, create for others, get to the line, be an efficient scoring force that we know you can be. And uh, that's going to be a massive deciding factor in this series. And what level we get from CP consistently. Personally, I think CP is going to play really well here. I think that... Drew, if he's matched up on him, could make things tough as he could on anybody. But I trust Chris Paul to play his best basketball in the big moments. And I think that that's what's coming in here. And uh, obviously that's going to be massive. I mean, the Suns rely on those two guys, but they also trust the role players around them. And that's an advantage that I still think they have over Milwaukee. So any final thoughts on this as we sit a day away from the finals? It's crazy. Yeah, Monty Williams got robbed for coach of the year. I mean, just absolutely screwed bruh like I know we gave out that award a while back but mm-hmm. I, don't, I just don't like it it was not a good look for the NBA in my opinion yeah uh, personally I don't think he got all that screwed I mean I think that Quinn Snyder had a case as the coach of the best regular season team that to me had similar expectations to Phoenix before the year that's why he was my pick and I think that Tibbs who was not my pick but ended up winning the whole thing pulled off one of the most incredible seller two legitimate playoff team turnarounds that I have ever seen that I did not see coming from a mile away. So there were three great candidates. Monty's a really good coach. He's done a really good job with this team, culturally as much as anything, and instilling this kind of self-belief that they have. But do I think he got aggressively robbed? Not really, actually. So agree to disagree there. I just can't wait, man. I mean, it's kind of surreal. This just is not how I expected it to play out. It became clear a little bit sooner that the Suns were going to be the team here, and the path opened up for the Bucks opposite them as well. But it's just wild to be sitting here a day out from a Phoenix-Milwaukee NBA Finals when a year ago, obviously, things looked so different for both of these teams. But here we are. I would like to get out of you, Logan, a Finals MVP prediction because we did not address that in our pick. Man, that's interesting. Um... Man, I mean, I genuinely see three different choices. Like, I think you could pick Aiden as an MVP if he plays well enough defensively yeah. and is efficient enough. I'm going to go Chris Paul. Like, I – book's a good choice. I think Paul runs up his assist numbers, and I think – I don't know, man. This is the biggest stage we've ever seen Chris Paul on. I just have to think that he takes his game up and plays the hardest basketball of his life, and – I think a Chris Paul like that is uh, undeniable. So I just think that he plays harder than we've ever seen him before. He gives he gives 110% and leaves it all out there on the floor. I think we get 20 and 10, 20 and 9. CP3 is going to ball out. I kind of think it's CP2. Not going to pick him, though. I'm going to pick Book. I'm going to pick the guy who I think is their best player. And I think that if he draws Drew Holiday, that's a really tough matchup that could impact his efficiency as a scorer in a way that CP, CP's efficiency may not be impacted. But I'm going to lean on Book to just go berserk here. Uh, I have the ultimate faith in him, and uh, that's what I would like to see happen. And so I will place my money with that. Aiden's interesting because I feel like we didn't talk about him nearly as much in this one as we did in previous matchups where it felt like he was so, so pivotal. Now we kind of know what to expect from him. I mean, the offensive production is consistent. The rim protection is there. It'll be interesting to see if he matches up with Giannis. I just don't think he can reach a high enough ceiling offensively, realistically. And I think that Brook is going to be tough for him. Like, he hasn't had to face off against a big of this caliber. And if he gets a ton of switches, you know, maybe he can abuse guys out of the post. I still don't love his game there, but he has the touch. He's a strong player on the interior, of course. And uh, that would be wild if he were able to play at that level to where he is a finals MVP in year three. I mean, good grief. He's already come so far. That would be taking it another step still. I just think that, yeah, Brooks a big physical body who's going to make life tough for him on the glass, who's going to take away some of that stuff off the roll. And this may be a quieter DeAndre Ayton that we see offensively in this series. Like against Jokic, we saw him 
have a quieter offensive series because even though Jokic isn't a massive plus defender, it's a big body. It's the kind of guy you cannot dominate as easily. We saw him find success against Zubots, but you know, still, it's tough to go up against a big body like that. He prefers getting the little guys onto him, and so that's a big challenge. All right. Well, with that then, are there any final, final thoughts, or should we wrap this puppy up? You know what to do. Let's wrap this thing up, baby. NBA Finals coming in hot. If you want to keep posted with our thoughts as all of this madness goes down, you know where to find us. YouTube, maybe you're already watching here. We post a ton of our full podcasts here, all of them. Really, you can check those out. We're doing a couple a week right now, all on the NBA. And we will also link the audio forms of that in the description, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your audio content. You can also find on our YouTube channel, video breakdown stuff. I should be coming out with another video soon. I did one last week that I referred to on this episode about how depth and defense have defined these playoffs. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh on Instagram at nerd sesh and at TikTok at nerd sesh where Logan just did an awesome video on which teams were most affected by the NBA draft lottery and how that all shook out. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was nerd sesh.